Ezekiel. We've been going through the different um, characters of the Bible in this season, starting with Genesis. And I think we actually have the graphic um, here. So this is the timeline we've been going through. So starting with Adam and Eve, with creation, going to the call of Abraham and the period of the patriarchs. Remember the patriarchs? Um, He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a generational God. He's a God that doesn't just look at the right now, but he looks at the generation that came before us and the generations that came after us. That's why we can be so excited that the part we play, not just in our local church, not just in our family, not just in the kingdom of God around the world, but the part we play in this moment of history is not nearly as big as what we are part of. Because what we are a part of is the greatest story of God's greatness and glory that is told from generation to to generation. So that's the period of the patriarchs. And then we have the Exodus. So after um, after the patriarchs with Joseph, we see the Israelites, they go into slavery in Egypt. They exit, hence the Exodus out of Egypt. They go into Canaan. Um, They conquer Canaan. They say that conquest is complete, but we know that there were still um, enemies in the land. We go through the period of the judges, and this is really unique because God had this system of governance for the Israelites that um, was a lot more grassroots. While there were judges who settled disputes, it was a lot more in the tribes and families and territorial, and so we don't have any king until Israel's monarchy begins. And so basically, when Israel chooses to have a king is the beginning of their rejection of God. Because they no longer trust God to be their ruler. And instead, they put their fate in the hands of one man. And they say, we don't want as a group to be responsible anymore. We just want a king to make all of the decisions for us. And so that's kind of the beginning of the rejection. Now, there's some great periods. We have um, King David who comes after, you know, we, we have Saul and then David. And that's a beautiful period. David and Solomon, it's the golden age uh, of Israel's history where there's a worship of God and, and where we see all kinds of amazing things happen, where we see wealth come into Israel like never before. It's a beautiful, beautiful period. But right after Solomon, we see the kingdoms break up. And so they break up into the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And so we went through the period of the kings and some of the important people in that period. And now we've been going through the prophets. So the prophet Isaiah And then we talked about the prophet Jeremiah, and we also talked about the prophet Jonah. And so now we're into the prophet Ezekiel. So let's turn to Ezekiel 37, or you can look at the big Bible in the sky. And we're going to read Ezekiel 37. And this is Ezekiel speaking in the first person. This is one of the things that makes this book really, really unique is that a lot of it is spoken with I. 
So it says this, the Lord took hold of me and I was carried away by the spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, son of man, can these bones become living people again? Oh, sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then the skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and that I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken Tonight, I want to speak to you on the subject of God is also in Babylon. God is also in Babylon. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are here, that you hear us. Lord, we thank you that there is, there is life and there is truth and there is something for us in every single scripture of your word. And so right now, as, as we read your word, I pray that it will come alive inside of us, that we won't miss out on what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. All right, so you guys know that I'm an academic. Philip says that translates as boring, but I am an academic. I love the nitty-gritty. I like the details. So for just a minute, I want to give you a few little details about Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was a Levite. He was 25 at the time of the first exile. So basically what happened was Babylon went in and took about three thousand people from the kingdom of Israel and brought them into Babylon. Okay? So they went and got these 
these people and they brought them in. Most of them were the, uh, the smartest and the most talented of the kingdom. They were nobles, sons and daughters. And in this case, Ezekiel is the son of one of the Levites. And he's not the son of one of the lower level Levites. He's the son of one of the higher level Levites, one of the Levites who would have served in the temple. And so they take him to Babylon and he's there for five years. And then he has this vision and God completely wrecks his life, completely wrecks his life. He's living with the exiles in Babylon. He's just minding his own business. And the first chapter of Ezekiel sounds like a sci-fi film. It's crazy. It's insane. And, and some of the writers will tell us this. They'll say, you know, Ezekiel was not used to visions and dreams. Isaiah was used to God speaking to him if you can ever get used to something. Jeremiah had been spoken to by God since he was a young boy, but Ezekiel was caught off guard. He was 30 years old, and suddenly he sees these visions, and we get the indication that he might have been a little bit of a nerd too, because his writing's really bookish. He's like, on this date, God said this, and this is what I think it looked like, and it's very, very specific, and there's lots and lots and lots of details, and you can tell he's struggling because he has nothing to compare what he's seeing to, and so he doesn't say, I saw this. He said, I saw something that seemed like it possibly might have been something like this. Have you ever had an experience with God and somebody wanted you to describe it and you kind of went, well, it was kind of sort of something. It reminded me like, you could just come to church, okay? Because <laughs> there's some things that you just have to experience for yourself. But Ezekiel tries to explain it to uh, some of the writers say that Isaiah may have seen the same things, but he was so accustomed to speaking with God that it never occurred to him to describe it in this kind of detail. But I love reading a book by a guy who was just completely in awe, <laughs> who couldn't leave out one detail, even if it didn't make a whole lot of sense who wanted so badly to convey God's heart for us. So he was 25 at exile, 30 at his calling when God showed up and showed him his first prophecy, and he was 52 at his last prophecy. He prophesied for 22 years, not consecutively, but 22 years. God kept on showing up and giving him prophecies. Um, now, during this time, he, of course, is with the first group of exiles, but then he also lives through the sacking of Jerusalem, which was the very worst thing that could ever happen in, in Israel's history. Because, of course, the temple was burned during the sacking of Jerusalem. Now, we have to remember that for the Israelis, for the Israelites, right, they believed that God resided in the temple, and it was true that God's glory had filled the temple, that he had chosen the temple as the place where he was going to relate to people. And now a foreign army, get this, has come in and burned it down. This is, this is beyond catastrophic. This is the center of their culture. 
It's the center of their religion. It's the center of their nationalism. This is all of those things. Imagine every single important monument in all of the United States rolled together in one, and that's what Jerusalem was, and now it was reduced to ashes. The golden age of Solomon and David reduced to dust. All of God's children now brought into exile. And that's what he lives through. He prophesies about it. Then he lives through it. And then he's able to speak the word of the Lord again. And the structure of Ezekiel is really similar to most of the prophets. He prophesies judgment on Israel, then judgment on the nations, and then hope. Judgment on Israel, judgment on the nations, and then hope. And there's all kinds of really important themes of Ezekiel. For, for one, um, God is, it has glory that transcends anything we can understand. Ezekiel tries to describe the glory of the Lord. It's unbelievable. It's beyond what we can understand. He, he goes through all kinds of different things. He used parables. He used spoken parables. He actually acted out all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm telling you, Ezekiel, there's so many amazing things that happen. At one point, he scratches a map into brick. And at one another point, he lays on his left side for so many days and on his right side for so many days to signify different things. He, he rations his food food and, and does all kinds of crazy things, cooking food. And, and, and he shaves his hair off with a sword to, to signify what's going to happen. And, and this was a big deal because priests weren't supposed to shave their heads. And, and, and then his wife dies. And God says, don't mourn her. This is going to be another parable. Another point, he's rendered unable to speak. And yet this book, even though it definitely was supposed to be a message to Israel and to the nations, it is such an intimate book of prophecy. I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah, these guys, they're like confronting. They're in Israel, and they are up in everybody's face. They're meeting with kings. They're meeting with priests. They're meeting with all kinds of people. They're getting to fights. Jeremiah is getting lowered down into holes. And I mean, he is, he's really in trouble all the time. Isaiah, same thing. He, he's having all kinds of issues. He's very confrontational prophet. Ezekiel's not. Ezekiel's just constantly spoken to by God. In fact, there's no indication that he ever stands before any authority and speaks. He's just simply a witness to what God has said to Israel. He's a witness and an intimate one at that. And he goes through... Israel being judged, and he explains it to us in such clarity. And he makes it clear that Israel isn't being judged because they violated some obscure tenet of the law. You have to remember the law is very, very detailed. It's very detailed. It's very, 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 very detailed. But he makes it clear that, that Israel isn't being punished because they violated some obscure tenet. It's because they violated the heart of the law the very core of it. And Jesus told us what that was, right? Jesus said that the core of the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so what Ezekiel says over and over again is he said, you have become idolaters. Now, the people in Israel were actual idolaters, right? They were people who were worshiping other gods. They were worshiping the gods that their God had vanquished. Their God had come in and defeated the people who worshiped the gods that they were now worshiping. And you may say, that's absolutely crazy. But isn't that sometimes where I find myself in my life? I serve a God who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. I serve a God who says, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind, or the ability to make good decisions. I serve a God who has conquered everything, and yet sometimes I find myself worshiping it fear, worshiping it with my time, making my attentions and my actions responsive to its demands, making sure, because that's what they were doing. They were, they were doing sacrifices to the gods of fertility so that they would have a good harvest. They, they were making sure that, that the gods of the land were appeased, even though God had already vanquished. And so they were autolatrous, so they had broken that part of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But they also were unjust. God hates injustice. God is a God of justice. You can see it from cover to cover. He does not like it when we mistreat each other and when we treat each other unjustly. And he punished Israel for that. The Bible says in Micah that that he punished Israel because they were unkind and unjust to the stranger in their land. To the stranger in their land. Why? Because God cares about justice. It's his heart. It's his heart because he said that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the core of the law. That's the core of the law. And so, so Ezekiel makes it clear that, that it's not that God's being, you know, picky and saying, oh, you did two extra steps on the Sabbath. Oh, you didn't wash your hands three times before you did this. Oh, you didn't. That's not what God's doing at all. God instead is saying, you broke the spirit and the heart of everything that I have told you to do. And because of that, I have no choice but to place you under judgment. And you know what's so interesting to me is I I think that this comes back to just a core issue of Christianity and of our tendency too, right? We want rules. We want checklists. I did this, 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 and this, and then this happened bam, I was right. And rules are great, but they can't take the place of relationship. Because if you put your trust in rules, then eventually you will lose the spirit of the rule and you will lose and you will use the rule to justify idolatry and injustice. That's just the way it is. Because if we rely on rules and we don't rely on relationship, then what are we saying? We're saying that we don't need God in the middle of our life, that we're okay with just doing a checklist and we'll leave him over on the other side. And yet God wants to have a relationship with us. God wants to be with us. God wants his spirit to be inside of everything we do. There's so many situations that we encounter in life that are so hard, and we say, well, what should I do? 
Well, you know what? If you have the Holy Spirit with you, he will guide you, the Bible says, into all truth. Into all truth. It's so important that we understand and that we're not like these Israelites and start to worship other gods and treat each other unfairly. Because when we do that, we can't help but fall into judgment. Um, the book of, of, of Ezekiel is a lot like a journal. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly personal. And I think one of the reasons is, is because um, he, he's writing from a different place, literally, than the other prophets. So Isaiah and Jeremiah are writing from Israel. And there was a belief during that time that God's um, word, that God's uh, presence only existed within Israel. So while God's eye could see all the way around the world, God was not going to speak outside of Israel. That's why Jonah, whenever God spoke to him to go to Nineveh, right, he gets on a boat and he runs away. Why? He didn't think that he could outrun God's eye, but he thought he could outrun God's voice. So Isaiah and Jeremiah are speaking from where God should be speaking, Israel. They're hearing from God where God should be talking. You know, like church, where God should be talking. You know, like from the place where you should be, where God should be talking. But all of a sudden, Ezekiel is pulled out of his home, and I can imagine him thinking as he crossed that border of Israel, as he crossed the border of his homeland, thinking, I'll never hear God's voice. I was supposed to be a priest. I'll never hear God's voice. That dream's dead. God's not going to speak to me now. I'm leaving. Maybe he thought that. Maybe he didn't. He ends up in Babylon, and suddenly God starts to speak to him in Babylon. God starts to speak to him, not in the promised land, but in the land of the enemy. God starts to speak to him, not in the place where you would expect God to speak, but in the place you would least expect God to speak. God starts to speak to him in the moment of his greatest need, where he is farthest, literally, from the holy place that he has ever been. I'm sure it might have seemed a little sacrilegious to him. God, why would you show up here? Why would you show up here? Why now? Why would you speak to me now? But see, Isaiah was telling us that God was not going to be limited by our failings, that he could overcome our failings, that he was going to send Jesus and he would overcome our failings. But Ezekiel is all about telling us that God's not limited by our location either. He's not limited by our location. He's not limited by where we are in life. He's not limited by the fact that we're not exactly where we thought we would be. And he's not limited by the people that drag us into places where we don't want to be. And sometimes we can think, man, if only this hadn't have happened, then I could have been what God called me to be. Well, if only this hadn't happened, I could have walked into the destiny that God had for me. But the truth is that God speaks in Babylon. God speaks in Babylon. He's not limited by our location. 
He's bigger than that. Think about this. Israel is collapsing. It's collapsing. This is God's country, all right? No, for real though. Like this is literally God's country. It's not Texas. If I ever run for governor, I just want you to know that my slogan is going to be, let's just be Texas. I mean, they've got like good roads and good schools. I haven't figured it out yet. Anyway, total side note. This is God's country. This is God's country. And it's collapsing. It's collapsing. And not like, oh, well, we're just going to shut our doors. People are being raped and murdered, and it's horrible. Atrocities that, that would literally be written down in, in other histories. They were so just mind-boggling. The temple is being desecrated and burnt to the ground. This is a horrible thing. And yet, instead of getting smaller, God just says, no, I'm just going to get bigger. I'm just going to get bigger. See, this temple and what you thought held me doesn't hold me. I'm bigger than you thought I was. And your crisis, you thought maybe proved me wrong. But see, you're just going to see a new side of me that you never saw before. You're going to find out that I submitted myself to that little bitty temple just so that I could get close to you. But I was never constrained or defined by your religion or by your thoughts. I'm so much bigger than what you think I am. And my reach is so much farther. And my love is so much higher. And that's what Ezekiel teaches us. Ezekiel teaches us so many incredible things. I mean, I, I love some of the just, just random things it teaches us. At one point, um, God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll, has him eat a scroll, has him eat a scroll of paper. I'm telling you, this book's wild. If you've never read it, you totally should. He eats it and he says it, it was sweet to him. And I was reading a commentator, and I thought this was so beautiful. And he said, when he ate the scroll, he was taking those words and internalizing them and identifying with them. He was identifying with God's words as though they were his own. And that there is a sweetness to the submission of obedience to his will. There's a sweetness to the submission of obedience to his will. When instead of just holding it at arm's length, we internalize it. And we say, you know what? It's not just for the church. And it's not just for my neighbor. And it wasn't just for my grandma. But this word, this law, this God is for me too. He teaches us that apart from our connection to God, that we're worthless. You know, the New Testament talks about how we are the vine, and, and it, or he is the vine and we are the branches, right? That God, Jesus is the vine and, and that we are the branches and that God is the gardener. And it's this beautiful picture. And Ezekiel talks about a dried up vine. It says a dried up vine isn't any good to build anything with. And it doesn't burn very well. In other words, it's worthless. It reminds us that apart from God, we are completely worthless. 
We don't have any eternal value. And it's so important that we stay connected. Teaches us so many different things, but, but probably one of my favorite things that Ezekiel really emphasizes is our personal responsibility for sin. See, from the very beginning of time, Genesis, right? Mankind has tried to blame other people for their sin. In the very beginning, the creation story, the story that, that we read in Genesis, what does it say? You know, Adam and Eve sin, and God asks Adam, what happened? And he's like, it's Eve's fault. He says, all right, Eve, what's ha- what happened? It's, it's the serpent's fault. We've tried to blame each other for our sin. I love marriage counseling. I love it. I don't do it very often, but I love it. I love it because everybody tries to blame their spouse for everything. And that just doesn't fly. Because guess what? Your sin and your issues are your sin and your issues. And if you're living and breathing, you've got some. Right? I do too. We all do. And it's so much easier to focus on the sin that everybody else has. Jesus said it this way. He said, you want to go and pick the speck out of your brother's eye while you have a big log in yours. And, you know, we, we skip over the next part. Jesus said, deal with the log in your eye so that you can see clearly to see the speck in their eye. In other words, you can do confrontation, but you better confront yourself first. And I have found in my own life and in my own relationships over and over again that when I was willing to confront myself first, suddenly I saw a little bit more clearly. But actually what's going on in that other relationship. Suddenly what looked like a log before really was a speck. What looked like was an ultimatum really was just a kind conversation. (laughs) Isn't it funny how when we just follow God's words and we take this principle that my sin is my sin and your sin is your sin and I don't get to blame my issues on you, you don't get to blame your issues on me, but the other side is true too. See, Ezekiel makes a big deal about how sin is not transferable, but it also makes a big deal about how righteousness isn't transferable says just because this person is righteous doesn't mean that their righteousness blocks out all the rest of the unrighteousness around them. Makes a really big deal about the individuality of salvation, the individuality. And this created all kinds of problems because remember that God to this point has been relating to Israel for the most part corporately, right? It's with the temple. We come as a corporate body. We do sacrifices corporately. But within that corporate body, there's people who are righteous and the unrighteous. Those who are living according to God's laws and those who aren't living according to God's laws. And so now God is bringing his punishment to bear with everyone while at the same time emphasizing that sin is an individual problem. But God can't have a community experience 
unless everybody is righteous and justified. Do you hear me? Now just stick with me for a second, okay? God can't have the community relationship he wants unless the individual relationships are straightened out. Do you hear what I'm saying? So sometimes we can get that mixed up. God wants to have a community relationship. God created us to be in community with each other. When he only had one of mankind, he said, that's not good. The only thing he said wasn't good in all of creation was when men are alone. And all the women said, amen. I have a friend who said that every time she goes out of town, she worries that her husband's going to die in front of a full refrigerator of starvation. We need each other, men and women. We need each other. We need to be in community. We're meant to be in community. And God wants to have a communal relationship with us. But the individual relationship has to be right first. But this is the problem. If you're following God, but you're not following God, and you're following God, but you're not following God, according to this model, God can't have that unbroken, beautiful relationship with us. Because my sin doesn't transfer to you, but what I did right doesn't transfer to you either. And then you take it a step further, right? And the Bible in the New Testament makes it clear that all have sinned and gone short of the glory of God. So in reality, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And I can't blame my sin on you. And I don't have anything good to pass to you. So what am I? I'm just one of many dead, dry bones in need of a supernatural moment. So Jesus came. We know that in the prophets, there's all kinds of beautiful things, and, and they were speaking to the now and the future. Isn't that great? God can do two or three or five or a million things at once. We find ourselves in this moment where all of creation is dead. We're all dead in our sin. And Jesus comes, and he's righteous. But remember the rule. You can't transfer righteousness. You can't, you can't transfer it. Can't transfer sin. Can't transfer righteousness. And God says, okay, we're just going to have to conquer the whole thing. We're going to have to turn death on its head. We're going to have to break all of the laws of physics. We're going to have to break it all up. We're going to have to reverse time. In order for me to have the communal relationship I want, I'm going to have to do something that has never been seen. And we see in Ezekiel this beautiful foreshadowing and picture of what Jesus would do for us because he took our sin on the cross. He died as us. And then he goes and he conquers death, hell, and the grave so that then he can transfer his righteousness to us. And he brings us back from the dead. 
He resurrects us into his life. Whereas we were dead in our sins, we now stand as the righteousness of Christ. And what I love is that in Ezekiel, they put the flesh back on them. They have them all ready and they're all ready as the army. And he intentionally stops right there. And they're standing there, all put back together, ready for the one thing that can empower us to live the life that God's called us to live, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus came, he died, he took on our sin. He broke all the rules. He conquered death, hell, and the grave. He took over the whole system so that then he could give us his righteousness and empower us with the life of the Spirit. Why? A lot of reasons. So we could be in that community of relationship so that we could be an army of his love and his mercy to the world so that we could be together and be a force to be reckoned with but also so that we could go back to the position that we were supposed to have in the first place because God created us to have dominion over the earth. God created us to do good works for His glory. God created us to be more than just trying to survive. He created us to thrive. He created us to be part of the greatest adventure that we can ever imagine. And when I look at that dry bones of Ezekiel, I just get excited. I get excited because it's a promise. It's a promise that we have a chance to walk into. It's a promise that God's not just gonna leave us dead in our sin. Instead, He invigorates our lives. He does the miraculous. He breathes the life inside of us. Every single day, we have access to that supernatural moment. You may say, well, Destiny, I have a hard time believing in the supernatural. Your relationship with God is evidence of the supernatural because it was impossible before. It was impossible before. It was impossible for us to have the kind of relationship that we have access to because we couldn't stand in His presence as righteous. And you know what? It's that same miracle that allows us not to just be individually righteous, but to stand before Him as a group, to stand before Him as a community and say, you know what, God? You have that relationship with us individually and it's right, but you can also have a relationship with us corporately. You can do more with us together than you can do with us apart. We can be a part of something bigger than the part we play because of what God did for us. So the book of Ezekiel, it teaches us so many beautiful things but it reminds us that when we feel least like we can hear his voice, that he's speaking, that he's speaking, that he's speaking, he's doing more than what we can see. And he's already done something so incredibly miraculous, so incredibly miraculous that anything else we have to ask for, 
we should ask with full faith. Because if God can bring us out of our dead sin into his righteousness, if he can do, I mean, think of how mind-blowing this is. This is all of Jewish theology, right? The righteous, no transfer. He breaks it all down because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. You can stand with me. There's just one more part that I want to bring out about this book. It's so interesting because he says, and then you will know, and then you will know that I am God. And then you will know that I am God. And then you will know that I am God. Knowing that he is God is the core of all of this. Knowing that he is God. And every time we get off center and every time we feel a little bit shaky and every time we're wondering what's going on in our lives, that's the center that we go back to. Okay, I don't really understand what's going on. I feel like I'm in Babylon. I feel like I've been put into a place I didn't want to be in. I don't understand, but he is God but he is God. And I know that because he saved me. And I know that because he healed me. And I know that because he restored me. And I know that because of what he has already done, he doesn't have to prove to me again that he is God because he has already done enough that I can stand with assurance knowing that what he said, he will do. That his promises are yes and amen that that's the end of the story. Can we just bow our heads for a moment? I'm just gonna pray for you. God, I thank you so much that you are the God that brings dead things back to life. And I thank you that as we stand here, we have an opportunity to choose you. And that when we choose you, you bring us back to life, you fill us with your spirit, and then you put us in an army of people who have a purpose that was laid out by you. God, I thank you for that. God, I pray that as we live the rest of this week and as we go into next week, that we'll walk through our storms with an assurance that you are God, that you are God, and that you are true to what you said, that you don't have to prove yourself again, that you don't have to do anything more to show us that you are who you said you are and that you have done what you said you will do. Right now, if you're in this room and you can keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed and you say, Destiny, I don't have that certainty of salvation. I, I, I just don't. I, I waver back and forth. I wonder if, I wonder if God really has done that for me. And it creates uncertainty in every area of my life. I don't have that certainty, that certainty that I've been brought back to life. But today I wanna settle it once and for all, that I accept Christ's sacrifice, that I accept the righteousness that he's conferred on me and that I am a part of the kingdom of God. 
I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm not just by myself in my own relationship with him working it out, but I am a part of the kingdom of God. What I am a part of is bigger than the part I play. That's you tonight and you say, Destiny, I just need certainty. Will you just raise your hand right where you are? I just wanna pray for you. I just wanna pray for you. Amen, amen. God, I thank you so much for the people who are in this room. Lord, I thank you that you have certainty for them. And I pray, Father, that we will leave this place certain that it doesn't matter where we are, that you're not bound by time, you're not bound by space, and you certainly aren't bound by our location. That you can speak to us exactly where we are. Lord, let us remember that we can walk through every day knowing you are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So we will see you Sunday.